Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Every year, millions of Americans are exposed to a contagious virus. What is this virus? It's stigma. Stigma promotes an environment of shame, fear, and silence, which prevents millions of people from seeking help. But there's good news. The National Alliance on Mental Illness believes stigma towards mental illness is 100% curable. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to curestigma.org and get tested for stigma. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Uh, you also can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the shows and share them with your friends and family. Well, today we have a controversial controversial uh, guest on. He was here before. He made me feel uncomfortable then, and I'm still feeling a little uncomfortable with some of the things he talked about. But I think it's important to learn both sides of the story. Dr. Hart uh, is a ZIF professor at Columbia University and former chair of Department of Psychology. Uh, is one of the world's preeminent experts on the effects of so-called recreational drugs on the human mind and body. Dr. Hart is open about the fact that he uses drugs himself in a happy balance uh, and balances with the rest of his full and productive life as a colleague, husband, father, and friend. Uh, in Drug Use for Grown-Ups, which is the book we'll be talking about today, he draws on decades of research and his own personal experience to argue definitively that criminalization and demonization of drug use, not drugs themselves, have been a tremendous scourge on America. Good morning, Dr. Hart. Hey, I'm happy to be here, Joy. Glad, glad to talk to you again. Yeah, man. You know, I tell the audience, he really you got to listen to his other interviews. You just look up his name and my name, it will come up. And I, I was like, really like, I'm a parent. Um, I had a parent who was on drugs um, and really um, affected my family um, and and my siblings. And so it, it just, it was really hard talking to him, but I really thought it was important to open your mind just to listen to what I would say maybe the other side of something. Um, and also break myths. And I think that's one of the things. I'll give you the title of myth breaker. You know what I'm saying? You really are breaking a lot of myths and really like kind of blowing my mind. Like I've been being lied to all my life. <laughs> That's how I feel, you know? Well, you might have been. I mean, with drugs, we, we have lied to the population um, a lot in part because drugs are great scapegoats. Um, and then if we blame drugs, then we don't have to look any deeper and do any deeper work. Uh, so the government, uh, many politicians, 
use drugs to hide the fact that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Parents even hide, use drugs uh, to hide the fact that they probably uh, fell out on the job as being a parent in some domain. Uh, I'm a parent, and it's a tough job. A number of people use drugs as a scapegoat. I mean, and so uh, all I'm doing is trying to ask people to look beyond drugs. Um, and because if we do that, then we might solve some of these problems that we are are faced with. That's that's it. That's all I'm doing. I'm not suggesting people should use drugs or uh, or anything of that nature. I'm just saying that people should look beyond drugs when they're trying to solve these problems. Well, now, you know, you were a researcher. So how did you get into researching recreational drugs on humans? How did that start? Yeah, I'm still a researcher. Uh, I've been researching drugs for about 30 years, and um, so about 30, 35 years ago, uh, the country was concerned about crack cocaine. Of course, uh, I grew up in a black community, um, and crack was said to be the cause of high unemployment rates, uh, un- uh, um, poor education, um, all of these sort of things that we blame crack for, violence. Uh, and so I wanted to study drugs in order to study drug addiction, and I figured that if I could help solve the problem of drug addiction, then I could help solve some of the problems in my community. And so that's what I did. I learned something about the brain uh, and how drugs affect the brain, and I tried to focus on drug treatment. Uh, But then over the course of this 30-year career, I realized that we've been hoodwinked. We have been lied to. Um, And so um, that's why I write these books. That's why I still do research. That's why I teach. That's why uh, I give public lectures to try and help people to understand that uh, it's because of our drug policy and our misinformation that we have so many of our people in jail that we have um, so many of our folks having these awful interactions with the police. I mean, uh, like Brianna Taylor would be here today if we didn't have this crazy focus on drugs such that police can come in your house and kick down the door because they think that you might have marijuana or cocaine. That's crazy. But that's what's happening because of our perspective on drugs. Well, now, so you were re- you're researching, but how did you slide into, and I'm putting it that way, uh, into using drugs? Because you initially did not, you, you felt like the rest of us, drugs are bad, you shouldn't do drugs, and then you decided, to, where was that transition, and why was that, tra- why did that transition happen? Oh, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, so let's be clear, alcohol is a drug, and, and I've been drinking alcohol like all my life, like most people, just in a casual recreational sort of social setting. Uh, and, but when we think about things like cocaine and marijuana, uh, I had dabbled as an, a youth, as an adolescent, but then, you know, during, um, I guess, graduate school or when I got uh, really serious about my uh, education, and and I was always an athlete too, so I was always concerned about just trying to make sure I'm careful about what I put in my body. So, And drugs were said to be bad, so that must have been bad for my body is what I thought. And so I, I was uh, – uh, I dabbled, but not much of anything. But uh, I guess when I became, after doing all of the study and research with drugs and bringing people into my laboratory and giving them drugs as part of my study and carefully studying them, 
the predominant effect that I was seeing was that people were having positive effects. They were having a good time. Drugs like cocaine produced increased euphoria, MDMA, increased openness, uh, connectedness, um, uh, enhanced people's ability to be more magnanimous. Um, all of these drugs were producing these the positive effects. And then as part of wanting to know everything about what I do in my studies, uh, I figured I should uh, actually have some drug experiences. And that, and that that's probably, uh, that's how I began to dabble, uh, just trying to figure out what the effects were for my own self. Um, uh, yeah, that's, a, and so this is after 40, after I'm, uh, after the age of 40. And so I'm an adult that know what I'm doing, I'm responsible and careful and that sort of thing. Um, and so it just became a part of my life, just like anything else, like going to the movie or to a show, um, uh, I might, do, or just like alcohol use, uh, I might have some to be social with friends or to be with my loved one. That's, that's, that's it. So the name of the book is Drug Use for Grown-Ups, but you know a lot of people are grown and not grown up. And one of the words you constantly talk about throughout the book is responsibility. Um, you also talk about liberty. So you, you, you're saying that um, because of our liberty, we should be able to use these drugs freely and not um, be admonished and, and not be demonized, but we also have to be responsible. Dr. Hart, come on now. I know people who are 65, who are 80. They are not responsible. They don't know how to balance their checkbook. They don't use condoms. I mean, they, they eat stuff off the ground. I mean, come on. You're talking about responsibility? They don't know how to communicate with their family and friends, but you want us to be responsible about drugs? How do we make or how do, how do, how do people become responsible? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, we're all trying to be better people. I mean, I hope. And on some days, we're better than other days. So being a responsible person is a dynamic process. It's not static. It's not like you become responsible and then you're always responsible. Well, that's the trick. I mean, um, but many of us, we do fairly well at being responsible. I mean, you think about people driving automobiles, uh, you can kill someone in a car, but a number of people do that well. They raise their children, they pay their taxes, they do their best. I mean, particularly now in this pandemic sort of situation, it's really taxing and pushing us all. Um, so um, I don't have some sort of special uh, insight on how to make people responsible. Uh, all I know is that if a society takes care of their people, like make sure that they have, they're gainfully employed, make sure they have structures, make sure they have safety nets, all of those kind of things enhance the likelihood that people will be responsible. Make sure that people have a stake in their society. When you shut out specific groups, um, that decreases the likelihood that they will uh, be participants and be responsible in that society. So um, it's a Difficult process, uh, and and I'm not and I'm not saying that uh, my book is teaching people how to be responsible. That's not it. My book is just really saying that um, the notion that responsible people are being uh, infantilized is just not appealing to me, and that's what I'm trying to help people to understand. Um, take back some of your um, liberty and not in a way where you're hurting other people, not in a way that you say, I'm not going to get vaccinated because that impacts other people. 
Um, so I, I, I'm saying in a way that you are conscientious about your fellow citizens. Mm. Let's talk about this issue of addiction because, you know, that's what is on the top of many people's minds. If I use a drug once, and you talk about that in the book, that I'm going to become, you know, addicted. Or we don't know who's going to become addicted. Um, some people do, some people don't. What is, the, what is the definition of addiction, drug addiction? Do you have a definition for that? Yeah, um, my definition is just consistent with the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. And that definition is just uh, you have the psychosocial disruptions. As a result of your drug use, you define these disruptions by, like, people failing to meet obligations, important obligations, like at work or for in the family or educational obligations and these sorts of things. And the person, the second component of that definition is that the person is distressed by these disrupt these disruptions. Uh, and so that's that's my definition. It's it's just consistent with the uh, one used in medicine. Now, in the book, you are talking about dose router administration set. Can you explain to the audience what those titles mean? Yeah, so um, when we think about drug effects, people oftentimes think about the drug as if the drug is the only component, as as if the drug is taken outside of this sort of context. So route of administration is how the drug is used, whether you take it orally, whether you take it intravenously, or whether you smoke it. Uh, route of administration can determine uh, the quality of the drug effect. So if you take a drug orally, the effects uh, takes a, a longer time to uh, be felt. And, uh, you take a drug like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, cocaine orally or heroin orally, the effects may not be felt for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Uh, if you take something like oral THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, the effects may not be felt for an hour and a half. Whereas when you smoke a drug, the effects are, are felt within seconds. When you shoot a drug intravenously, the effects are felt within seconds. And uh, the more rapidly the effects are felt, the more intense they can be. Uh, and also when you uh, take it via the intravenous route, uh, um, you might increase the likelihood of having an overdose, whereas if you take it orally, uh, it comes on slower and you can also pop the stomach if people get in trouble, uh, whereas intravenously you can't. So route of administration is important. Uh, you don't really want novel, novelists to, um, to shoot a drug intravenously. You know, it be, might be wiser for them to do oral administration. Um, and so I try and help the reader understand that uh, if you're going to be doing any of these things, from alcohol to tobacco, kind of know something about the route of administration. And then the context, uh, if you take a drug in a situation where it's an anxiety-producing uh, situation, take something like marijuana uh, during that situation, that could be a bad thing. It's not the smartest thing to do. You want to make sure that you're in a setting that's comfortable, uh, a setting that is supportive. Um, all of these things uh, impact drug effects. You were in the book talking about your colonoscopy. Um, a kudos to you for that because a lot of men don't want to talk about that. I do shows on a variety of health issues, and one of them was colon cancer. Please, please go and get tested. Uh, it, the doctor is not worried about your ass, okay? <laughs> they just want to find out that you don't have cancer. So I'm gonna, I'm really happy that you mentioned you as a black man were in the office getting your colonoscopy. 
Now, why are you laughing? Are you laughing? <laughs> no, seriously. We have to be we have to be straight, okay? We're talking about drugs here. Come on, I can't say ass. I mean, really? <laughs> no, you got it. This is your house. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you were there in the doctor's office, and um, was that the first time you came out publicly, or when did you actually come out, like, I guess, to your family, for, did, when did you come out to your family and, and to your colleagues? Uh, so like my family, there was really nothing to come out to with my family because uh, it, it's not a big thing. It would be like to, saying to my family, yo, uh, I'm, I'm drinking alcohol now. That's the, this is what I okay. do. I've been doing this for like 30 years, as I said. My, my, kids mm-hmm. have come, my kids come with me into the laboratory. They've been coming since they were able to walk and they see me give drugs to people. So we've had this ongoing conversation for, you know, my youngest kid is 20 years old now. So mm. they that that's not a big deal. Uh, but it, just in terms of the public, I think it might have been 2015 in an interview uh, in NPR. I, I just wanted to, the, the point, the reason why I had to come out is because I see all around the world middle to upper class people who use drugs. They are the predominant drug users, but the portrayal is uh, these poor people in urban communities, for example, and that's just not consistent with the reality. And I was making a plea to middle to upper class people come out of the closet so we can change this perspective. And maybe if we change this perspective, we would be more compassionate towards um, those uh, people who were less fortunate. And also we would decrease the hypocrisy around this subject. That's all I really was asking people to do because they always ask me about mass incarceration and all of these negative effects that happen with our drug policy. People always say, what can I do? What can I do? You can get out of the closet. You can help other people stop being vilified. That's why I came out of the closet. If I was going to ask somebody to get out of the closet, I had to do the same thing. I had Mm. to uh, be an example. Now, other countries are doing uh, what you consider great things, and you mentioned Portugal, Switzerland, and Brazil. But one of the things you talked about in Brazil was that, yes, it's legal to use, but then when you get stopped, it's the cops. Talk to, them, talk to us a little bit about the Brazil situation. So uh, the first thing people have to understand that Brazil has the largest black population outside of Africa, right? So... Brazil's population, more than 50% of the people there are African. And Brazil is uh, like apartheid. Probably it's worse than South Africa now in terms of subjugation of Africans, subjugation of black people. Now, Brazil has a policy. Their policy is like decriminalization or depenalization, as they call it, meaning that if you have uh, small amounts, amounts just for personal use, you don't go to jail. You know, you might get a fine. You might be required to go to a drug treatment uh, course or something of that nature. But what happens is that uh, for black Brazilians predominantly, when they get caught, they are considered traffickers and they go to jail. So, like, the black Brazilians go to jail, the white Brazilians get a warning, or they go to treatment. And um, and so that situation in Brazil is uh, horrific. 
Uh, we think about how the police kill uh, black people there. I mean, you know, they kill like 1,500 people in the city of Rio, the police, every year. Um, and it's, mm. uh, it's outrageous, and they're predominantly black. Uh, and they use the issue of drugs and drug trafficking to justify um, these sort of killings. And that's one of the reasons that I uh, am pushing for um, liberalizing drug policies because the, the enforcement of drug policies is leading to the death of so many Africans around the globe. Yes, in the book you talk about several um, African men who've been shot and killed, and the police used the justification they might have smelled marijuana or they thought they had marijuana on them. Um, you know, Philando uh, Castile, you know, was shot think, seven times, and the guy said, oh, he thought marijuana, and plus the guy said he had a gun. But the guy didn't wasn't holding the gun, and he told him he had a permit, but that's, that's you know, that doesn't matter. So what can we do here in the United States? Because many states have um, legalized marijuana. See, this is what I have an interesting question for you. Many places have legalized the use, okay? So I can use, but then they vilify the sale. How yeah. do we cross this border here in the United States? Because anybody can be bribed. This is my feeling. So, so okay, I don't want to go too far. Let me go ahead. How, how can we? How can we fix this? So in the U.S., uh, we have to understand the difference between decriminalization and legalization. With marijuana, we have about 17 states that have legalized marijuana. That means that you can sell it, you can buy it, of course, and consume it without worrying about uh, being uh, penalized. Uh, but decriminalization is what happens in most much of the country where uh, personal use of marijuana is not a criminal offense. So you don't go to jail, you might get a warning or what have you. That's the, that's the, the difference. That's what you're explaining. Um, but places that have legalized it, like uh, New York and Illinois particularly, their law um, is trying to uh, address uh, the past ills of drug enforcement, the war on drugs, in terms of how it has so detrimentally affected black communities. So they... They, some of the profits from the legal marijuana industry will be pumped back into black and brown communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs. So, for example, in Illinois, uh, a black person or a person who's from these communities, they, they get priority in license to sell marijuana. And there are uh, like uh, 25% of the profits of the whole industry go back into the development of some of these communities. New York and Illinois have the most progressive laws. Um, um, other states who will come online and legalize, hopefully they will take a page out of New York and Illinois. Um, but the thing that's important here is that no southern state has legalized marijuana. Now, the southern states have the largest proportion of black uh, citizens, so you have a greater mm -hmm. percentage of black citizens in the south, and they have fought marijuana legalization. Uh, the police uh, unions and organizations, the lobbies, they are fighting it tooth and nail, in part because uh, marijuana is a really good probable cause. So people say, 
well, I smelled marijuana, so that means that we can now harass you. But if you legalize marijuana, you take away that probable cause from the cops. So the cops really want to uh, keep marijuana uh, illegal uh, so they can continue to uh, behave in the way that they behave. That's all. That was a thing. I remember hearing that in the news. I was like, oh, my God, the person got their face eaten off. Um, in, in, in my area, actually, in Philadelphia, there was a situation I remember hearing that people thought it was probably like bad salt. One of the things that I will say is the general population and myself included, we were taught that drugs mess up your brain and make you do crazy things, make you become irresponsible, maybe crash your car, maybe forget about your baby is crying, maybe tell your baby. Maybe in 10 years, your brain is like mush. You're saying that's not the case. No, you know, that's just, this is part of the horrible education that we do. I mean, there are so many things that are worse. But first of all, let's just understand, I want to be clear. When I'm talking about drugs in the brain, I'm talking about doses that people typically use to feel good. Not, like some people uh, overdo it and they do stupid things, but they never use the drug, and then they use this large dose. That's, that's not healthy. That's not a good thing to do. I am not talking about that kind of thing. That kind of person probably won't be with us for long if they do behave like that. But in general, when we think about drug effects, there's no evidence that people who do doses that just produce euphoria and that people are seeking uh, produce any long-term changes or harm to your brain, like something like American football, like the Philadelphia Eagles or whatever, those people are far more at risk of having brain damage than people who use drugs. But we never say this. People who play soccer and they do the header, and those people are far more at risk. Boxers, all of these people, this is like so much more dangerous. But we don't talk about this. We even let children play American football. I think about mm-hmm. the role the roller coaster rides at the at the carnivals. Like my kids, I never never let my kids do roller coaster rides because it's dangerous on our brain, and and so uh, we don't emphasize that kind of thing. But we talk about drugs; it's remarkable. But then we also think about kids who are on medications, like my kids for asthma. All of these drugs affect the brain. Um, uh, but we don't talk about that, those in terms of toxicity. Uh, we don't talk about uh, attention deficit disorder medications that kids take. Uh, they take amphetamines. Um, amphetamines are they're the same as methamphetamine. And I'm not saying that uh, children shouldn't take those. In fact, I think they should if, if it's warranted. Uh, but the point is, is that we selectively talk about toxicity when it comes to drugs, neurotoxicity, and we have exaggerated that. There are far more concerns that children face uh, than drugs. Uh, and, and this is not to say that children should be doing illicit drugs. I'm not, not advocating that. I'm just saying the reality is this. Now, in the book, you talk about the government should be the administrator of giving out the drugs and testing the you know, potency and all that stuff. But uh, I go to the question of, is that then like a big brother thing? Because what if they figure out there's somebody they don't want to give drugs to and then they stop them? And, I mean, can't that also go awry, if you will? 
Uh, I, I don't exactly know what you're saying. All I'm saying is that the government, there should be quality controls like there are with alcohol. For example, mm-hmm. doing, doing alcohol prohibition, um, people were still drinking. They were drinking illicit alcohol. And right. that, during, that, during that time, we had a lot of overdoses. People died. They were maimed from tainted alcohol, just like today with opioids and these other drugs. People are dying. People are maimed because from of the tainted. Right. But then when alcohol prohibition was overturned, uh, we had uh, quality control. Uh, the government checked to make sure that it is actual alcohol in the bottles and so forth. That's all I was suggesting, that we have quality control. That's all I was suggesting. Not that the government tells who and who to use. I mean, they can, if we decide that you have to have a requirement, for example, like pass a test in order to have access to this drug versus that drug, that's fine. Or some other requirement, that, that's fine, like age requirement or uh, whatever other requirements people might think is appropriate. Wow. Well, we have run out of time, but Dr. Carl Hart, I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book. I encourage people to follow him. You can check him out on Twitter. He also has a website, Dr. Carl Hart. Are you on uh, Instagram or, or any other Yes, place? yes. It's all the same, Dr. Carl Hart. That's it, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, I'm out there. Well, check them out. It may seem like a little strange, uncomfortable. I encourage you to read. There's so much that we didn't have a chance to talk about today. So please, please follow him and also check him out. Thank you so much, Dr. Hart, for coming on again. It's always so good to talk to you, Joy. I mean, I have in my mind is the last time we talked, I was at the Puerto Rico airport. So that's where you're always at in my head. Oh, cool, Carl, because, you know, you are cool, Carl, right? <laughs> and not controversial, Carl. Cool, no, Carl. no, no, cool, Carl. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, take Thank care. Thank you so bye much. Bye. Okay, bye bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, uh, please follow on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You guys have a wonderful day. I'm going to be speaking with a, a, a musician, Ashley Henry, in about 15 seconds. Stigma may not directly affect you, but it harms the one in five Americans living with mental health conditions. Which prevents millions of people from seeking help. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to CureStigma.org and get tested for stigma. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.